Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Bill Manley for a conversation about Egyptian hieroglyphs. During the conversation, we're going to understand better the history of this ancient Egyptian writing system, how Egyptians used it to communicate with one another. And at some point during the episode, I'll ask if Dr. Manley can share an example or two and some background information on the basics of how we could uh, understand and decipher hieroglyphic writing. Dr. Manley is a British Egyptologist. He's Honorary President, Egyptology Scotland. He's a university lecturer, museum curator, and best-selling author. He writes books. A couple as examples include Egyptian Art, World of Art series, and another How to Read Egyptian Hieroglyphs, the latter published by British Museum. Welcome to the call, Bill. Thank you, Andrew. It's really nice to be here. So to start with an overview type question, Bill, to create background, what are Egyptian hieroglyphs? Well, uh, what, it, what it is, is a, is a writing system. So it's, it's a way of, of writing words. And I think the biggest misconception that most people have about Egyptian hieroglyphs is a, it's a kind of picture writing. So that if you look at a hieroglyph, if you see uh, a bird, an owl perhaps, that it represents an owl. Um, if you see a picture of a human foot, that it represents a foot and so on. So you're looking at what the hieroglyph is and that tells you its meaning. Uh, but in fact, in a different way, um, but nonetheless, um, in a similar way, it um, is the same as our alphabet. It's writing hmm. the sounds of uh, a language. And of course, that language is the ancient Egyptian language. Um, so if you see an owl, in a hieroglyphic inscription, it's actually writing the sound m and m. And the foot mm. I mentioned is writing the sound b. So it really is just a way of representing the sounds of a language so that you can record the things that you'd want to say. And so we're talking about Egyptian hieroglyphs today. Um, circa what date are we ta talking about when we reference uh, hieroglyphs that were produced in Egypt and when someone references Egyptian hieroglyphs what geographically are they referencing are they referencing the state of Egypt as we know it today or is it a bit of a different area well the, the to, to deal with the, the second part first geographically uh, yes, Egypt, but Egypt in the broadest sense in the ancient world. So um, it's the, the land along the River Nile mm -hmm. from the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and then typically at least a thousand kilometers to the, the city of Aswan, um, which is the traditional southern boundary of Egypt. Um, but at okay. various times, especially in the period that we call the New Kingdom, the, uh, the, the Egyptian control extended almost the same distance further south again through the lands of Nubia, um, the lands mm -hmm. of Wawat and the, the kingdom of Kush. So wherever the Egyptians were, um, hieroglyphic writing was a way of, of writing their language down. The, the language itself is the only known indigenous language in, in Egypt. Um, and the hieroglyphic script effectively is, is really only ever used to write the Egyptian language by mm. e Egyptians. Um, in terms of time, your first question, mm -hmm. uh, the, the earliest hieroglyphic 
uh, inscriptions uh, are connected with the burials of the first kings of Egypt, the first pharaohs. And uh, although the dating isn't absolutely certain that far back in history, we're talking somewhere around about 3000 BC. Okay. I think the most recent research might suggest even uh, one or 200 years before that. Um, the latest known hieroglyphic inscription um, is from the famous Temple of Isis at Philae in the, in the far south of Egypt, at Aswan, which I mentioned uh, before, uh, which is dated um, more precisely 396 AD, I believe, off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Forgive me if I have that wrong. Um, so, yeah, the Egyptian hieroglyphs are in use as a script in Egypt for more than 3,000 years. So, the earliest hieroglyphic inscriptions are as distant in time from the latest hieroglyphic inscriptions as you and I are from Tutankhamun. What is significant about Egyptian hieroglyphs? Why has it captured scholars' minds over the years? I think the there are two aspects of that. that one of them is a historical one. I'll, I'll come back to that in mm-hmm. a moment. The, the more obvious one is that it's just such a beautiful way of writing, such mm-hmm. a beautiful script. And if anybody uh, visits Egypt or, or looks at uh, collections of Egyptian objects in a museum or whatever, mm-hmm. um, there, are, there are two obvious things about Harriers. First of all, they're all over the place. I mean, they, they love to, to, to write. Um, and the, the, the other aspect of that is it's just so beautiful i mean i mentioned to you before that it's a writing system designed to write sounds um so then we might ask why would they use pictures to write if they're not simply picturing what they mean if they're actually writing the sounds of a language why use pictures Mm -hmm. well the idea is that the script was meant to be very beautiful because in fact they Mm -hmm. only used hieroglyphic writing in uh, certain contexts, what I suppose we could call uh, sacred contexts, the ancient Egyptians, their, their temples and their tombs. Mm-hmm. So these are the, the monuments which, which uh, talk about the relationship with the gods or the relationship with the dead. Um, they're designed to express something beautiful, something wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so they have a, a script which is designed to add information um, to, to actually write down meaningful statements which explain what's what's happening in these contexts, but also to add to the beauty, mm-hmm. the, the authority of these m- monuments. So if, if you do visit Egypt or if you do visit a museum collection, you just get this really strong sense that these things are trying to talk to you, that mm-hmm. there's more information to be had, that these hieroglyphs um, carry information which must be must be significant, must be important, because so much time, care, and attention has been devoted to inscribing these things into stone or to inlaying mm-hmm. them into wood. Mm-hmm. So there is just that sort of vivid um, sense that the, 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 uh, these hieroglyphs are beautiful and they're, they're trying to talk to us. And certainly when I uh, teach courses, uh, one of the principal reasons why people come along to learn hieroglyphs is because they've they've done just what I said. They've visited Egypt and they've gone around to see these magnificent mm-hmm. monuments and um, suddenly realize that the, they just want to know what it is mm-hmm. that these monuments are trying to say. The other side of it is, is a more historical one. Um, sometime at the end of the 4th century and the 5th century AD, the, mm-hmm. the uh, ability to read these uh, inscriptions was lost and 
Um, and of course, it, first of all, it became a fascination amongst uh, scholars in, in, in Europe to try and understand what they said. And this, this is something which persists right through the, the, uh, the Middle Ages into uh, early modern times. But also because they misunderstood them. The, the, the idea developed that there was, uh, there was something mystical about Egyptian mm. hieroglyphs, which of course fits in with the, with the general sense that people often have that there's something mystical about ancient Egypt and more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, because there was the, the, the implication of something mystical, actually it, it, it led to the, um, to the belief that the, there is kind of primeval wisdom uh, to be found in, in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic texts. And this actually drove lots of uh, mm-hmm. philosophers and, and people with power and authority uh, to try and understand what the hieroglyphs were about because they, they actually believed that there was power uh, to, to be had. Um, yeah, the, the thought of not understanding at all what you're looking at it probably naturally infatuates and captures a lot of people. You mentioned uh, fourth, fifth century. It was lost to some degree. What what ha- what happened around that time? Well, uh, what's uh, happening is that Egypt was changing uh, at that time, um, and the, it's important to to remember that, as I said, that what what hieroglyphs were used to to do was to write down the sounds of the Egyptian language. And mm-hmm. the language itself continued in use. But by the time we get to the fourth and fifth century, Egypt had been under Roman control for, for several centuries. Um, and the Roman control was by, quite brutal. Um, you know, obviously, <laughs> the, the reputation of, uh, of the Romans in, in the occupation of, of other places. The, the, mm-hmm. the occupation of, of Egypt was, was uh, especially brutal at, at times. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in particular, the persecution of the Christian population of Egypt. Um, and by the time we get to the, the end of the third century, um, the, the persecution of Christians in Egypt takes on a kind of nationalist uh, mm. dimension. And um, so, for example, one of the things that we see under Roman control of, of Egypt is that the use of the native language was completely suppressed in government and administration. If people wanted to get by in life, get into positions of authority, they had to use Greek as the, mm. the common language of the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, so that they, you couldn't get anywhere learning uh, using your own language. In fact, um, what we see then is the emergence of a, a group of people who, who are called Copts. Mm-hmm. And the word Copt is just an abbreviation of the, the Greek word Koptos, which mm. is Egypt. Um, but the Copts were, if you like, people who spoke Egyptian. So there's a kind of us and them mentality behind it. There is the Greek-speaking rulers of Egypt and there are the Copts. That's to say the people who speak uh, Egyptian. But um, tied up with this is the, the conversion of, uh, of Egypt to, to Christianity and the, per, the persecution of, mm. of uh, Christians in Egypt, as I say, at that time becomes a kind of nationalist matter and great uh, figures emerge within Egypt as, um, as nationalist rallying figures. Um, uh, the great Saint Anthony, um, Saint mm-hmm. Minas, whose shrine was one of the great pilgrimage places of the, um, of the early medieval world. Uh, these 
are key figures in the development of a, an Egyptian identity of, of themselves as distinct and separate from this kind of oppressive Roman rule. Um, so one of the things they do is they, they try and distance themselves from traditional um, patterns of, uh, of education and authority. Mm -hmm. And they adapted the Greek alphabet to write their own language. Um, and therefore we call these texts Coptic texts because yeah. the, yeah. these Copts, these native Egyptians are, are using these texts. And, and uh, they're very often Christians, of course, as well, um, as I say. And, and they just go down this path which separates themselves, distances themselves mm. from um, the, the, the Roman oppression that they feel they've been under for three, four hundred years at this time. But Roman oppression had become tied up with the, the old ideas of pharaonic Egypt and so on. So really, it, mm. it is just a rejection of, of um, a kind of oppressive uh, Roman rule, which leads them to, to develop their own path. And instead of relying on traditional pharaonic culture, they, they rely instead on a new identity as Christians, um, as people who use uh, their own language instead of... Uh, um, the, the, the Greek language of, of the Roman rulers. Mm -hmm. um, and in order to do that, they, they put behind them those, those things which uh, traditionally were, were associated with um, pharaonic rule, which had become tied up with Roman rule. And so mm -hmm. um, the, ultimately hieroglyphs were, um, for, for, uh, for the last few decades at least, in which they were in use, hieroglyphs were pretty much used by a small number of um, priests who adhere to the traditional Egyptian religious cults, but amongst their countrymen were probably uh, quite suspect as, as people mm. who were in, uh, in in cahoots with the uh, with the regime, which was a you know a, a despised regime at that point. So is it around 400, 580, the traditional Egyptian hieroglyphs as we know it? largely falls out of use and then that is the inception point of coptic is that what scholars believe yes it's so the fourth century is, is the key point um yeah. so if you were in egypt around about 300 a.d just to use round figures you were in egypt at 300 a.d you would see a province of the, the roman empire um, mm -hmm. And you would see a country which ostensibly adheres to traditional pharaonic belief. But by 350, it, mm -hmm. it is a majority Christian country. Um, and, and I mean, this, this happened so quickly that part of it must be that there was this undercurrent of people who had turned to Christianity because they were rejecting Roman rule, but because of persecution and so on. Um, they, they weren't able to, to talk mm -hmm. about this openly. Um, and, and the, all, all the factors uh, are involved as well, of course. But as I say, as part of this, they're turning their back on traditional pharaonic ideas so that between 350 and 400, we, we see the, uh, the, the temples of, of Egypt uh, in, increasingly isolated within their communities. Um, the Roman Empire itself, of course, in the fourth century becomes uh, tolerant of Christianity. Uh, in 385, the, uh, the pagan temples were, were closed across the empire. 
Um, but by that point, most of the uh, Egyptian temples that were in use had actually been converted to Christian churches anyway. Mm. Um, so as I say, the last hieroglyphic inscription is from 396. So okay. that's the very end of the, the fourth century. And it's in the far south. And the reason it's in the far south is that um, the last vestiges of uh, pharaonic culture, if you like, actually continued in the kingdom of Meroe mm-hmm. um, in modern Sudan. Um, so they actually maintain pharaonic uh, traditions for, for a couple of centuries, at least after the, the Egyptians had converted to Christianity. But they use their own language by this point, okay. um, rather than the Egyptian language. So um, okay. hieroglyphic, Egyptian hieroglyphic inscriptions uh, uh, stopped being used. Um, but it's no coincidence that the last inscription is in the far south, because that's really the, the, the sort of the, the, the contact point between Egypt and the the kingdom of Meroe. Um, so um, by the by the end of the the fourth century AD, um, the, there are no hieroglyphic uh, texts um, produced in Egypt by Egyptians, and mm. the whole country is converted to Coptic. But the the Coptic language is the same language. It is the uh, the language which had uh, had been always the, the spoken language in Egypt. Mm. It is. The, the same language which we find written in hieroglyphic inscriptions, albeit, of course, uh, at a later date. Um, so um, uh, I, I, I tend to say that the, the relationship between the, the Coptic language and, say, the language of Egyptian hieroglyphic inscriptions is the same as the relationship between modern Italian and Spanish and uh, classical Latin. Mm-hmm. It's the same language spoken by people in the same part of the world but separated by hundreds if not uh, thousands of years um, but the fact that coptic um, is the same language turned out to be invaluable because mm-hmm. in the 19th century uh, when it came uh, to when it came to the moment where people began to uh, be able to read egyptian hieroglyphic inscriptions again one of the the key um, well, in fact, the crucial piece of information was was the fact that the Coptic language, because it was written using the Greek alphabet, mm. had always been known to European scholars. So um, when people understood the hieroglyphic inscriptions were writing a language, it became very obvious that the language it was writing was uh, Coptic, or at least uh, related to, to Coptic. Um, and obviously, the, that's when the penny dropped. You know, if if they're writing a language in hieroglyphic texts, and we know um, that language, or at least we know uh, a later version of that language, then it became increasingly straightforward to to make sense of those hieroglyphic texts. So you mentioned the, I believe you mentioned the 18th century is when it seems to really pick up momentum for deciphering um, hieroglyphs. Um, the Rosetta Stone is something a lot of people know about. So can you can you speak about about that and anything else that's related? Was it was it really the the Rosetta Stone that was the inception point? Is there other stuff that um, really helped facilitate this breakthrough in understanding the le- the, the language, or is it or was it really the, the discovery of the Rosetta Stone? The Rosetta Stone was crucial, um, and uh, various other monuments as well. Now, um, 
given the nature of your podcast, the first thing I'm going to say now is I'm going to, to apologize. Um, you're pushing me to the, the edge of my knowledge, as it were, because I'm... Um, completely fine, yeah. Completely. No, no, but what, what, yeah. I, what I'm going to say is if I do talk about the Rosetta Stone, uh, I may be talking to uh, to talking, and you've got listeners who know far far more about the, the history of the Ptolemies than I do, so I, I apologize to them if I offend anyone with my, um, my understanding here. But Don't tell um, me. Anyway, I mean... <laughs> Uh, but the, I suppose the end of the 18th century is a key moment, and it's a key moment in various ways. It's a key moment for scholarship. People are beginning to uh, to uh, increasingly become interested by mm-hmm. the, the ability to read Egyptian hieroglyphic texts. Um, I mean, obviously, over the centuries, there have been uh, there have been attempts to make sense of, of Egyptian hieroglyphic texts. But in, in the 18th century, um, we move into a period of, of scholarship where people are, are aware of things like comparative linguistics, comparing different languages mm-hmm. and the grammar of different languages and so on. So there's a new awareness of, of how scripts and language and so on are used. Um, but there's also something else which is important in this, which, which brings a Rosetta Stone I- I- into play, which is, which is Napoleonic Wars. Um, and because of the Napoleonic Wars, Egypt becomes an important battleground, mm. um, uh, just be strategically because of you know its location on the Mediterranean. Also, uh, Napoleon is very interested in Britain's relationship with India uh, and so on. Um, obviously, we're moving into the era when people start planning things like the Suez Canal and so on. Mm-hmm. So um, instead of people being fascinated by Egypt at a distance, we've now got Europeans, and in this case, European armies uh, in in Egypt. And so an awareness of Egypt um, strategically um, is important for, for, for the uh, European powers, but also um, to understand, therefore, something of... Uh, of the, the history of Egypt become, becomes uh, important as well. And the first great archaeological survey of, of, of Egypt famously was conducted by scholars who were part of Napoleon's expedition, which mm. arrived in Egypt, I think, in 1797. Again, forgive me, I've got that day mm-hmm. wrong, but I think it's 1797. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, the, you know, the, 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 the Napoleonic Wars are in full flow. Um, the Rosetta Stone was discovered as part of the the French uh, expedition. Uh, it made its way, of course. Now it's in uh, it's in London, the British Museum, um, and that is a direct outcome of uh, of uh, Nelson's uh, military naval victory um, at the uh, outside uh, Alexandria. Um, so uh, Napoleon was forced to to abandon Egypt. Um, now, the Rosetta Stone made its way to London, but copies of the text on the Rosetta Stone made their way all over uh, Europe. Um, so scholars have been interested in, in how to make sense of, of hieroglyphs, were fascinated by, of course, first of all, copies of hieroglyphic monuments. Mm-hmm. But the Rosetta Stone turned out to be one of a, a group of, of monuments um, which mm. have a Greek text on them. And um, the importance of the Rosetta Stone is that the Greek text specifically states that it's an exact copy of the Egyptian text. Um, so for the first time, uh, scholars in Europe not only have a hieroglyphic text, but they also have uh, a translation of that hieroglyphic text mm-hmm. into a language they know. So therefore, um, therefore they, they, they know 
um, what the hieroglyphic text is talking about, which sounds straightforward. It, it wasn't that straightforward. Um, they did, it's not so straightforward as that, first of all, because although scholars knew uh, classical Greek, the Ptolemaic Greek, which is on the uh, uh, on the Rosetta Stone, mm-hmm. is, is fiendishly difficult. I'm not, I'm not a great scholar of, of Greek, I have to say, so I'm only going by its reputation among some of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a difficulty in, in reading the Greek anyway, but also the hieroglyphic text is actually mostly missing, so we've only got a chunk of the hieroglyphic mm-hmm. text. Um, but there's actually a third inscription on it, which is in a, a cursive form of... Uh, of um, Egyptian writing, essentially directly derived from Egyptian hieroglyphs, but very cursive. So it's, um, if you like, it's the difference between, if you imagine hieroglyphs are are like um, beautifully decorated signs on shops uh, and so on, you know, graphic design, because as I say, they're designed to make things look beautiful. But if you just want to write uh, some accounts, if you if you want to write a, a register of people who, who are at work today, if you want to scribble down a, a note for someone. The, the Egyptians, of course, didn't uh, get a hammer and chisel and carve hieroglyphic inscriptions for this reason. They developed a way of writing using uh, a brush and ink, a cursive way of writing, uh, which is just like our handwriting in the same way. It's often joined up and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, this way of writing, since it's so much more cursive, is just a bit more difficult to see uh, and interpret. And unfortunately, the only Egyptian text which was complete on the Rosetta Stone was this cursive um, text. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the scholars were forced to uh, begin to make sense of uh, the Rosetta Stone using a difficult Greek text and uh, an even more difficult uh, Egyptian text, and in a sense, the hieroglyphic text had to come last. Mm. There was one other complication as well, which is that because the Egyptian text was a cursive text, scholars were very willing to believe that this was a writing system which writes sounds, just like our alphabet. But still, they were convinced that the hieroglyphic way of writing was, was something very different. And that really put back their efforts for a long time. So mm. the cursive text, actually, people began to make progress in reading the cursive text quite quickly. But the hieroglyphic text in the Rosetta Stone, partly because it was broken and partly because of this conviction people had that it was a, a kind of mystical system of symbols, um, that really uh, took, a, took a while to, to, to begin to, to make sense of. And, and really it was about shaking off this prejudice that it was not a simple writing system, but it was something somehow, um, as I say, more, more mystical. When it was used in ancient Egypt, how prevalent was it? Was it only um, created by a limited, you know, defined group of people that might be more rulers and priests or aristocrats or what have you? Or was it actually quite common amongst many people? Hieroglyphic writing, I, I suppose uh, I should say the, the, the obvious thing to do is, is make that distinction I just made there between hieroglyphic writing and, and cursive writing. Mm-hmm. Hieroglyphic writing is uh, a decorative script. Uh, as I said, it is it tends to be used uh, in the sacred context of the ancient okay. Egyptians. Their temples and their tombs, as I say. So, therefore, really, 
you know, it, it's, it's not something which is designed for ordinary everyday use in any event, you know. Um, and as I said to you before, perhaps the best way of thinking about it, the, the most obvious comparison in our culture is something like uh, sign writing, you know, uh, where people create beautiful decorative graphic design for use in, in shop signs or on posters or, or whatever else it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, a hieroglyphic text really is, is if, if we think of a book, we would obviously assume that writing is where you open up a book and you, you look at the, the, the lines of writing all regular sized or laid out as printed on the page of the book. Hieroglyphic writing, in a sense, is much more like the cover of the book, where what you're mm-hmm. likely to have is, a, is an image of some kind, and then you will have text around that image. And the, the text which goes around that image is intended to be um, beautiful, or it's intended to catch your eye, and it can be very large, it can be very small, it can change its shape, it can change its direction, and so on because it's graphic design. So in that sense, uh, hieroglyphs are are used by a very, very small number of people because they're really only designed to be used in the kinds of monuments which will be created by kings or the the people close to the king Um, and in the tombs of individuals. And if you can put together a beautifully decorated tomb, then of course you can have access to hieroglyphs and you can decorate your tomb with hieroglyphs. But of course the reality is most people didn't have the the wherewithal um, to put together a beautifully decorated tomb. Um, the, an ancient Egyptian tomb was design, designed to have two parts, if you like. It was designed to have a burial place um, where the, the, the uh, deceased would lie undisturbed, but there was meant to be a public space, a chapel, we tend to call it a tomb chapel, a public space where people would visit. Mm-hmm. And then this would be decorated with scenes of the deceased, scenes of the afterlife perhaps, and then there would be hieroglyphic inscriptions which would go with it. And um, just, you know, as you can imagine, the, 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 simply to have the wherewithal to, um, to get a decorated tomb chapel requires that you have access to mm-hmm. um, stone and skilled people who can uh, carve the stone, um, decorate the stone and so on. So mm-hmm. this is actually a, a small number of people, although we do know that it was kind of an aspirational thing. I mean, most Egyptians would aspire to this kind of tomb if it were, mm-hmm. if it were possible. Um, so no, hieroglyphic inscriptions are, are restricted to very small number of contexts really which which are essentially controlled by a very small number of people Uh, and indeed beyond that the actual number of people who compose hieroglyphic inscriptions i think was probably very small and Mm. and these people are likely to be priests of some kind because one of the things that we see with egyptian hieroglyphic inscriptions is that they they tend to be very formulaic and repeat over time so Mm. if you look at uh uh, an inscription from somebody's tomb from, uh, say, the Egyptian Old Kingdom at 2500 BC, and you compare it with a tomb inscription from, say, Ptolemaic Egypt mm-hmm. at 300 uh, BC, 
um, so separated by more than 2,000 mm-hmm. years. In fact, there's an awful lot of information there, which is pretty much the same information because it's it's just repeating certain ideas, certain values, certain beliefs about the, 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 uh, the afterlife or the relationship between the living and the dead which are consistent over, over that period of time. And um, mm. in hieroglyphic writing, the, the, uh, the idea is very much of it, it's not broke, you don't fix it. So um, they, they, they have standard ways of talking. I guess this is quite typical of religious language. They have uh, certain ways of, of, of uh, uh, speaking about things which are passed down through the, the generations. And as it happens, that can be for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, with with the with the cursive way of writing, mm-hmm. as I say, cursive writing is 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 a way of writing with a brush on on uh, paper. Famously, uh, Egyptian paper is made from papyrus reeds rather than wood pulp, but mm-hmm. it's basically just paper. So um, you're, you're writing with ink on on paper, and um, uh, you can use this therefore, you know, much more generally in in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And as I say, we have medical prescriptions. We have mm-hmm. um, literature uh, we have simple registers of, of attendance at work on a particular day or whatever things like this just ordinary everyday written material from from working life in particular um, so this is used more widely however I mean uh, the, it, it does seem quite uh, apparent that the, the number of people who could actually read and write in in, in ancient Egypt was very small first of all because um, it was treated as a skill, um, like another skill. So writing in ancient Egypt was like being a stonemason. You know, it was it was something you learned to do because it was a practical skill to have. It wasn't. There, there was no suggestion that to, to 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 learn to read and write was a good general background for anybody, in in whatever walk of life there would be. If if you needed to write for your job, then you would learn to write. Mm. Um, partly. Also, that's a function of the fact that there were no schools as such in ancient Egypt. So if you wanted to learn to read and write, then you you, you needed to have access to somebody who who could read and write, you know. And mm-hmm. if, if that person happened to be your, your, your dad, then you could learn easily. Um, if your dad couldn't read and write, your, your chances of, of learning to read and write in turn mm-hmm. uh, were, were not uh, straightforward, shall we say. Um, but the, the other thing is that uh, writing is very much connected with administration, with authority even. So as I say, we shouldn't think of writing as a, as a symbol of education and enlightenment in, in ancient Egypt. It's very much a statement of, of a role that you play in the administration of the country. Um, so the people who did learn to read and write uh, ordinarily were people who had positions of responsibility in, in the administration, or, or else they were people who were employed by those people simply as scribes that's to say simply to to read and write um mm. the, the reverse of that however is it, it's it seems quite apparent that all the people at the highest layer levels of egyptian society including the kings were literate they could read and write so mm. um it, it's it's really a, a symbol of uh, or a statement of authority in egypt to be able to read and write and therefore the numbers of people involved are relatively small some estimates suggest as many as one in 20 egyptians could uh mm. could read and write in the cursive script but okay. other other estimates put the figure even lower okay. maybe, maybe one or two percent so um at best maybe one in 20 adults could read and write but i, I would tend to think fewer than that language naturally evolves over time and there are, there 
are some exceptions to that. Classical uh, Latin from around 50 BC to 200, give or, give or take, right? It's, uh, Cicero and uh, Julius Caesar uh, and, uh, and others made a concentrated effort that it wouldn't evolve. When, when and you use the example of looking at a piece from 2000 BC to 300 AD, what has Egypt, uh, Egyptologists found? Has there been much evolution to the, to the actual um, hieroglyphs, the actual symbols used, or is it pretty, uh, not to use a pun on purpose, but pretty set in stone? Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, this is, this is actually the, the, the point at which we have to be quite clear that, you know, Egyptian hieroglyphs is, is a writing system. And the language is something else which lies behind it. Mm. The, the, the language itself, as you say, um, you would expect it to show a lot of change, and, and it really does. Um, in fact, I mean, one of the things that interests me uh, about studying the Egyptian language is that, uh, believe it or not, uh, the ancient Egyptian language has the longest recorded history of any human language. Um, now, I believe that's a true statement. And again, I apologize mm. to any of your listeners who I might have offended there, but the earliest written texts in the ancient Egyptian language appear, as I say, around about 3000 BC, maybe before that. And the, uh, the, sorry, the latest Coptic texts, and remember it's the same language, the latest Coptic texts uh, are written sometime after 1000 AD. So we've got um 4000 maybe 4300 years continuous written history in the ancient egyptian language so as you can imagine it's changed enormously over that period of time um so by comparison the earliest chinese texts i believe are dated maybe a thousand bc so we've got three thousand years of chinese um the earliest mm. Greek texts, I suppose we're looking at Linear B and so on, were maybe 1300 BC, something like that, the earliest. Mm. So a bit more than 3000 years. So um, at the moment, ancient Egyptian has them beat by about 1000 years in terms of language development. And actually, I think one of the things which is becoming more generally of interest to scholars of language is the, 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 um, the, the fact that ancient Egyptian is written down for so long that you really can study change in development in one human language over a period of time which isn't available with any other language so that uh, the study of the Egyptian language is perhaps becoming more relevant to people um, than simply the study of ancient Egypt itself. As far as the uh, the script goes though, no, um, the, 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 that's one of the remarkable things is that um, the earliest written texts um, written in hieroglyphs around about 3000 uh, BC there is a, is a period of development, but to me, it, it, it's a matter of decades at most. And in fact, mm. um, I, I'm, perhaps I stand at one extreme in, in this discussion. Some people see maybe 200 years of development. I don't, I don't see as much as that myself. Um, but certainly by the time we get to the period that we call the, the Egyptian Old Kingdom, um, maybe 2750, the, the writing system that's in place is effectively the same one which is still being used in early Roman Egypt 3,000 years later, mm. um, nearly 3,000 years later anyway. The principles of writing are the same. Most of the hieroglyphs are, are the same. And, and um, 
unlike our writing system, hieroglyphs use hundreds of signs rather than, you know, just uh, the 26 letters of our alphabet. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously there is that much more scope for science to change and develop and so on. But the actual writing principles don't change over the whole of that period. Um, the signs themselves don't change an awful lot. I mean, mm. over a period of 3,000 years, the change can seem enormous, but then you have to step back and say, well, this is 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. That's an enormous period of time. Um, but if you actually take that time frame in, into into uh, consideration, I think the change is actually quite minimal. The, the Egyptians devised a way of writing uh, at the very beginning of pharaonic history, and they stuck with it. And even when they were introduced to other ways of writing, um, cuneiform writing, alphabetic writing, and so on. Um, they saw no reason to 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 abandon uh, what they were doing. As I say, the the shift to uh, using the Greek alphabet in Coptic times was more a, a political matter, if you like, than than a, a literacy matter. And and then we are three and a half thousand years almost from the origins of, of writing. So, hieroglyphic mm. writing now is remarkably conservative. Whereas the the language, of course, changes enormously over those three thousand years. Now, if you look at cursive writing, as you can imagine, you do see a lot more. Uh, change in development because cursive writing of course is is uh, something which is just more uh, quicker more fluid you know people are writing using a, a brush and ink so they they can uh, they can set about their work with a lot more freedom if you like than uh, a mason um, charged with uh, copying a, mm-hmm. a beautiful inscription to stone would be so perhaps there's no surprise there however the principles of writing remain the same and again if you take into account the fact that we're talking about 3,000 years of development, it's actually surprising how little Egyptian mm. texts change over that period, you know. Um, but it, it's um, it, it's extraordinary to think how long Egyptian was in use. And yet uh, the other side of it is it's extraordinary to see how little change in development there is in the hieroglyphic script over those 3,000 mm. Remarkable. So as a wrap-up question, um, can you share, and is it, when, when referencing a specific symbol, is, is that the term or is there a more technical term to, to use? Uh, I would call it a sign. A sign? Okay. Can, a sign, okay. So, and listeners will need to visualize, like me as well. Can you share a sign that, can you describe a sign that is very uh, intuitively descriptive, so somewhat obvious for what its meaning is, and then share another sign that would not be intuitive to contemporaries. Uh, yes. Well, I, I, w- I would do it slightly differently. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Take the liberty. Yeah. So, um, so to take an obvious one, uh, the hieroglyph of somebody's face can be used to write the word sight so you you would think well that that's uh, that that's obvious that, that's straightforward mm-hmm. um but actually what's happening there is that the hieroglyph of somebody's face is being used not to write the word sight but the sound of the word sight mm-hmm. and therefore it could be used to write any other word which has those sounds in it mm-hmm. so to explain what i mean it might be easier if i use an English example. Please. If, if, yeah. 
So the, the classic example that, 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 that uh, tends to get used here is if, if you imagine this way of writing. If we wanted to write English in hieroglyphs, we could, for example, take the image of a, of a bee and we could use that to write the word for a bee. Um, but we could also take that bee and put it with an image of a leaf. Mm -hmm. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. And you put those two together and you've now got bee leaf. Mm -hmm. Mm. And of course, the, the idea of belief has got nothing to do with bees. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with leaves. What's happening here is that the sound of bee and the sound of leaf put together produces what we call a rebus, belief. It's very phonetic. Yeah. And that's, that is essentially is how Egyptian hieroglyphs work. Mm. So the, the Egyptian word for um, sight, I was just mentioning mm -hmm. before, is her. So when you're drawing a face in hieroglyphs or somebody's carving a, a, a face, um, we might think, ah, look, they, they've carved this face and this is by implication, you know, you, you, you're meant to understand that this is, um, this is how they represent the idea of sight. But no, they're, they're actually just writing the sound, her. Hmm. And any word which has that sound, her, in it can be written using that face it doesn't have to have anything to do with sight or face or anything it Got just it. happened sound like that mm -hmm. now um the, the the net result of all of this of course is this way of writing only only makes sense if we all agree what we're doing and right at the beginning that's that's how egyptian hieroglyphic writing operates at the very beginning which which to me indicates quite clearly that it was an invention that's to say somebody somewhere at 3000 BC mm -hmm. sat down and said, this is how we are going to do it. Because if we don't all do it the same way, we'll just confuse ourselves because I could draw, I could draw a face in one way and you could look at it and say, mm -hmm. what the heck is that? You know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, so, so it was an agreed system. So mm -hmm. there, there was a, there was a moment where somebody in the Egyptian palace, I presume, or, you know, a group of people, whatever sat down and devised this way of writing. But as you say, it is phonetic. It's about writing the, the sounds of, of a language. And so sometimes there may be a coincidence between what you're looking at and the word, but really, most of the time, it's about the sounds of uh, words. And any coincidence is, is purely coincidence. Yeah, it makes sense. Excellent. Uh, closing question. So over the decades of experience, what moment stands out for you when you're looking at something at an excavation or what have you, what is most, what, what, what um, memory is most pronounced for you when you think back on your career discovering something? A personal memory? Yeah. Because you've looked oh. at, right, you've looked at a lot of hieroglyphic texts and different objects and artifacts. Is there one that stands out as very memorable for you that you discovered? Well, there is. It's very, very mm. specific. I'll do my best to mm -hmm, paint a picture of yeah. it. Um, <clears throat> I worked, uh, so we're going back 15 years okay. maybe now. Um, I, I was involved with uh, a survey of, of uh, a tomb in the south of uh, Egypt. Um, this was with the, the uh, Supreme Council of Antiquities in, in, uh, in Egypt and also with the University of Liverpool. Um, and we were working on the tomb of a man, his name was Ang Tifi. Um, he was mm. uh, a governor okay. in Egypt about 2300 BC. 
Um, and, and Egypt at that time was, was on the brink of a civil war. I, I think there, there was a... It's difficult to know what was going on, but I, I think um, what was going on was, was simply there was a dynastic dispute over the succession of the pharaohs uh, at the time. And the king in the north was being opposed by a pretender, shall we say, in, in the mm -hmm. south. And the, the people in the south would actually win this war. But the war hadn't begun uh, at the moment when our man Antifi died. Um, and his, um, his tomb is actually even further south than the, uh, than the pretenders, uh, shall we say. And he owed his loyalty to the king in the north. Mm. So, um, I don't know, we were looking in his tomb. We were, we were doing a survey. This, we didn't discover this tomb. This tomb was well known to, mm -hmm. to Egyptologists, but it hadn't been looked at since the 1930s. And the original uh, survey of this tomb had been interrupted by the Second World War. So mm -hmm. uh, nobody had been back there for over 60 years. So we're just surveying it, and it's very damaged. So there are just bits of scenes on the wall where they, the plaster, I mean, remarkably, after 4,000 years, nearly 4,500 years, the plaster decoration on the walls of this tomb has survived, but only in, in, uh, in fragments in places. And there, there's mm. a scene which showed feet, our man's feet, and that's all that survived. And uh, a boat in a festival, clearly a religious festival, um, and it was just reading the, mm. the remains, a, a fragmentary text underneath, but the remains of the, of the text were there. And it just mentioned the fact that um, the king had come to visit him um, during mm. the festival. You know, the king had been in attendance in the festival. And, and it just, for a moment, it just made me mm. very conscious of the fact that where I was stood four and a half thousand years ago, the country had been on the brink of a civil war, you know, yeah. and these were the kinds of things that happen in these moments that uh, uh, a king from the area of modern Cairo now had traveled 600 mm -hmm. uh, kilometers south um, to, to be in the, the neighborhood of this guy who was his friend and support. Mm. And the whole country stood on the, on the edge of uncertain times, difficult times and so on. And um, somehow a record of this had survived and, and suddenly there's just that depth of history, you know, nearly four and a half thousand years later, I'm stood there on this <laughs> spot and you're realizing that this all actually really did happen. It really did happen <laughs> just outside here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I walk to the entrance of the tomb, you can see the River Nile there, you know. Um, I'd like to say in my mind's eye, I could see all the, uh, the boats uh, going past the king and so on, but oh, I don't have that vivid yeah. imagination. Yeah. Um, but it, it was just that one of those moments where you go from being uh, an academic who's just looking at, I was photographing the inscription at the time, that was my job. Yeah. So you go from being the, just the, uh, the academic who's, who's employed here to make a record of these uh, inscriptions to, to somebody realizing that there's, there's human life behind all of this there's mm. human history behind all of this and you're actually looking at, at something that really did happen here all those many many centuries ago what a beautiful story thank you for joining today bill you're very welcome it's been my my pleasure great great chat so again everybody uh bill has written several books but a couple for reference on this topic is uh our egyptian art uh, the World of Art series is one. Um, How to Read Egyptian Hieroglyphs, uh, published by British Museum, is another. I'll drop links uh, to the books on the IthacaBound.com subpage. 
that's associated to this uh, episode. Uh, Bill and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. And if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.